The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. Hey, do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 2, this morning. We'll be in verse 22, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up and wave it around. We will make sure that you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you. And we pray the Lord will just use that to bless you and teach you more and more about who he is, his will for your life, his love and grace for you. Um, I have a couple of announcements here. Um, Rogue Valley Mobile Pack, Feed My Starving Children Project. Uh, Registration is up for this and it closes today. So early registration closes today for Feed My Starving Children. If you're going to get involved in that project, make sure you do that today. Stop by... Is there a table today? Aaron, are you in here? Is there a table back there today? So Rogue Valley Mobile Pack will have a table. Go and talk with those guys. Great service opportunity for you and your family and a lot of fun. Make sure you get involved in that. Also, coming up soon, uh, milestone number five. So if you are the parent of a ninth or tenth grader, um, there is a uh, milestone gathering coming up. I don't see a date on here, but register online at the Connect Center. There's no date on this thing, so I don't know what that is. But if you're a ninth or 10th grade parent, your uh, uh, milestone movement toward maturity is coming up for, um, coming up here real soon. So make sure you just stop by the Connect Center and find out on that, and we'll get an announcement right for the next service. So, <laughs> um, and then this one's important. So really, well, they're all important, but this one's important. Um, holiday food baskets this year. So we have a really cool thing going down here as a church that we are just really excited to announce. And um, this year, as you guys know, every year we've, we've done food baskets for people who are hungry. For uh, uh, We've done it through different organizations. We've done it for people in the church body. Um, this year, we're going to be doing that again, but there's a, a unique little twist on it that is super exciting to us. Um, One of our elders here got it worked out with us to be able to partner with Safeway. So Safeway, the Medford Center Safeway, the one over here behind the movie theater, they do that thing where as you're going through, you make a donation towards, it's like a Santa thing or a Thanksgiving turkey something thing. And that money goes towards uh, providing food for families. And they have decided to partner with Heritage and all of that money that they take in through there, which could be somewhere, I think last year it was somewhere around $16,000. All of that money is being funneled through Heritage to be able to use to provide uh, Christmas baskets for and, and Thanksgiving baskets for families throughout the valley, which is such a cool opportunity that um, a local business would want to partner with a faith-based organization, with a church specifically, um, to be able to work together with us in doing that. We're just super excited at the opportunity to to be a gospel presence in the valley and also represent and befriend, um, uh, you know, a, a big business here in the Pacific Northwest and in our valley as well. So we're really, really excited about this. So here's what this means to you, okay? Um, first of all, here's how you're going to help us with this. We need, number one, we need you to help us in identifying people that we can bless with these food baskets. We're talking to some other organizations and foster families and, and figuring out other avenues by which to disperse them as well. But, but we really, this year, big time, want to make a real intentional missional focus. So I want you guys to bear down, maybe in a way you never have before, and really think about who is in my neighborhood, 
um, who is on my, you know, families on my kids' little league team or in the schools that my kids go to or where I work, who is it that we could come alongside and be a real gospel presence in their life through this specific program? And we need you to get that information to us really, really soon. So please start praying about that. Please start having discussions as a family about that, talking about, hey, who, who could we really bless with this? Because it's going to be a really cool opportunity. Um, and then the second thing is, is you can contribute. You can contribute to this. Um, offerings, uh, monetary gifts will be given anytime before November 12th. That's because that's when all the money has to get processed and everything gets, gets done. So any monetary gift that you give here or at that specific Safeway. So and let me encourage you guys, go shop there during this season. Because one of the things that they told us that they really like about that um, is that when, when our people go shop there and you're like, you know, paying your bill and they say, do you want to donate a dollar towards whatever they call it, the turkey, something or another, um, and you say, yes, actually, we're part of Heritage Christian Fellowship and we're partnering with you guys to take care of this. They want the employees at Safeway to feel community with us in this, which is just so cool that we get to do that. So I encourage you guys, go shop there. You can donate through there. Tell the, the people at the checkout, tell the people in the store that you go to Heritage that we're partnering together. It's going to be an exciting thing to do that. And you can give through there. Um, and then also, we are going to take these things and, and we get the opportunity to really make an intentional gospel approach in this. And so we're going to be making these cards and they'll be available next week. We'll, we'll tell you all this. You'll get this long announcement over and over and over for a month, but, um, which is such a joy for me. But um, <laughs> these cards are going to be made available where we want you guys, as you're coming and going from church, to take one of these encouragement cards, really pray over it and write a really gospel-centered, like a, just a note of encouragement specifically to one of the families that's going to receive that food basket. We, we're going to put one of these notes in every single basket that goes out. It's got information about our church, when our services are, are and all this kind of stuff. And we want you guys as the church, as the body, to be able to write those notes. So we'll have those notes available starting next week. Start doing uh, uh, encouragement notes there. And then again, just please, if you're over at that Safeway, and it's only the Medford Center one, each store does these things individually. So it's only the Medford Center one. And that doesn't mean you can't go to the other one. But, but at the Medford Center store, if you're there, please tell them, thank you. Tell them we are excited to partner. This is a really great opportunity. And they're hoping it goes really well to be able to partner like this with us for years to come. So, um, so we really want to make this a super positive experience. And we as a church want to be a real blessing both to a local business and to people in the Valley uh, coming up this year. So that's a pretty cool opportunity, right? You guys like that? Amen. You can clap. It's 830 service, but you can clap a little bit, right? I'm really excited about that. So Lord, we even just pray right now over that opportunity that you would just begin to work and give us, um, Lord, the privilege and the opportunity to be a light that, that focuses on you, um, both to that business and the employees and people there and the people who we're going to be able to bless through this food. Lord, I just pray you would, would just really work through that. And I pray that you would um, use this not to bring glory to heritage or to Safeway, but to you and your kingdom. So may you use it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. By the way, I forgot one more thing. There's one other place that we're going to need help. And our signups for volunteering up now. Okay, so signups for this are available right now. 
we also will be delivering the food baskets. So we need, we will definitely, if it's sixteen dollars to $20,000 worth of food, we're going to need some help with that. So we want you guys to be able to take the food baskets to the actual home, pray with the people there at the door as you drop off the food, and really get to be um, a much more active part of this program than what we've been able to do in the past. So we're really excited about that. So look forward to that, would you please? Um, if you would now, grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, and join me on your feet as we read the word of the Lord. And this morning we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 verses 22 through 38. Luke 2 verse 22 says this, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law. And he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation That you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And she was a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. God, I just pray, Lord, now that as we bow before your word, that you would just speak to us, that you would instruct us, you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that you would minister to us, that you would awaken our soul, our mind, our spirit to what you're saying to us in this particular text this morning. I pray, God, you would even, your spirit would even be moving right now, Lord, preparing the, the soil of our soul for this word that it might produce fruit as we leave this place. And I pray, God, you would just be with us this morning. Be our teacher, be our leader, be our God, be our king. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. This is a little bit of a paradigm-busting sermon, I have to warn you. 
when I was first looking at it, I was realizing, you know, we have um, baby dedications coming up in about two more weeks here at the church. I was thinking, man, this was bad planning. If we had known that and thought about that and planned this out, we would do this service or this sermon on that week because Jesus coming to the temple for dedication and we doing the baby dedications, it seems like it would fit and everybody would be here, be a big happy service. Then I started studying and reading and planning and looking at what this actually says and I was like, no, that's not the sermon for that day. This is kind of a paradigm busting. This is in some ways not what you would consider a happy sermon, but it's a very, very important sermon. We have to consider a little bit where we've been, what we've seen so far in the book of Luke, all two and a half chapters, almost three or almost two full chapters in at this point. So far, we've met one very old couple. We met Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. The scripture tells us that they were advanced in age. They were barren, had not had children. They were past the point where that would seem to be possible and natural. And then we've met two, a really, really young couple. We met Mary and Joseph, Mary, mother of Jesus, who is by all accounts, maybe as young as 12, 13 years old at the time that this takes place. And now today in this story, we go back again. And now we have a story where we get introduced to another couple of, we would say, very old people in the scripture. It's this paradigm shift back to the other end. This is really important. This particular story is only included in the book of Luke. Now, why is that? Did the others just not know about it? Did the others forget about it? Did they not think that it was important? Well, we know that the gospel writers were very, very good writers. They knew what they were doing when they were writing. And in each gospel account, there's a certain purpose to their writing. They're not sitting down trying to give a step-by-step historical account of every single little Thing that happened in the life of Christ. Each of them is telling a story about the life of Christ with a specific emphasis or a specific point. And in this particular book, in the book of Luke, there's a specific purpose. Luke, as we know, is writing a Roman official named Theophilus. He's writing a detailed account, a factual, reliable account, as he says in the beginning of the book of Luke, so that you can be certain about the things that have taken place among us. He, he's making sure that, listen, you can trust what has happened. And he's writing this guy in a specific way. There, there's this theme that keeps happening over and over and over in Luke that if you think about it, we've seen this happen over and over already, and it's going to happen again in this text today. And the idea of it is fulfillment, this idea of fulfillment. Over and over and over, we see the, the references to prophecies that have been fulfilled, promises that have been fulfilled over and over and over. We saw it in the, the prayers and songs of Mary. We saw it in the declarations of Zechariah. We've seen it over and over, even in the, 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 the birth account itself. And so now Jesus is being brought to the temple and we see this thing's going to come up again, this idea of fulfillment. And why is that the case? Why is this happening? Why is this so important for Luke as he's writing this man, Theophilus, um, that this was originally written to? Well, for two reasons. The first of all, we've already talked about before. New is not good in the ancient Near East, especially when it comes to religions, philosophies, belief systems. If it's something that you are going to bet your life on, if it's something that you're going to follow, that you're going to now adjust the way you live based on these truths or these 
premises or this teaching, then something new in the ancient Near East is not trustworthy. It's not been tried and tested. It's, we don't know what this is. It's not tied to anything. We've got no track record. And so no one would want to buy into something new when it became these new religions, new faces. No one wanted anything to do with this. And so over and over and over, Luke is saying, look, this isn't some new thing. This is tied into the promises of God from all the way in the very beginning. He's constantly reaching back and saying, this is part of the overall work of God that has always been the case. It's something we should be telling ourselves over and over. We are part of the continuing story of God. And this is really important to them. And and it becomes really important because right now Luke is making a little bit of a transition. And so this is where it's somewhat interesting that we've got this young couple meeting this older couple. And then the story's going to break away and begin to follow the life of Jesus after this part. And that's because... Luke is going to show that this is part of the overarching promises of God throughout all of history, but that the program of old is over. The sacrificial system, the way people related to God, the way people came to offer sacrifices for sin, the the promise era where the people of God are waiting for this Messiah to come, those days are over. They no longer live in an era of promise anymore. Now they live in an era of fulfillment because the promised one has come. And Jesus himself will teach this in Luke 16, 16. It's going to say, the law and prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. He's saying, look, at that point, after the prophet John, things have now shifted. And the promises of old have now been revealed to you. And this is a a new change. It's a new season. It's a new kingdom era that that they're a part of. And this new era is not new. It's the promised one that's always been there. And that's really important, especially to this guy, Theophilus, that's reading this stuff. Because, and point number two is, because Christianity has been a problem in the world. So at the time that this was written, the spread of Christianity has already been happening. This is somewhere around AD 70 to 80, depending on which historian is right. We don't know for sure, but somewhere in that window. So around 45 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the church has already begun to spread throughout the world. And the church has caused the Roman ruled world a lot of problems, a lot of them. It's brought a ton of conflict, tons of it. It's brought arguments. It's brought um, uh, beatings. It's brought trials. It's brought riots. It's brought death. People have been killed. People have been martyred. These things are happening all over the Roman world. And it is a direct threat to Rome because these claims that Jesus makes in scripture, the idea that Jesus is Lord, well, that's blasphemy and treason to the Roman kings, to the Roman Caesar. And so here's this guy, Theophilus, a Roman official, and Luke writes this account to him and he's telling him, look, this is part of old. This is part of the works of God from the very, very beginning. And he's trying to root it into something trustworthy and reliable because right now it looks like something new is going on and this new thing is causing problems all over the place. And so even as he does it, think about the people that he's introduced so far. We've got a priest 
old, in his day of service in the temple, doing his duty as a good Jewish priest. We've got Mary submitting to the Davidic covenant, the promises of this king. Now here we have this couple bringing their child to the temple as you were supposed to do for your firstborn to offer the sacrifices because this child is set apart for God. All of the things they're doing, he's showing them, look, these people aren't rebels. This isn't a group of people who just popped up out of nowhere, came up with all this new stuff and have decided to just overthrow everything, start anarchy, build a new kingdom. That's not what's happening. This is, these are people who have been part of this long-standing tradition of worship and service. He even goes out of his way, even with the people in today's story, to point out these are devout people. These are righteous people. These aren't people who got together and said, how can we overthrow Rome and build a new kingdom? He's saying these are godly people. These are trustworthy people. And this is really, really important because Christianity has caused a lot of conflict. And that's important for us to realize too, because we know this, that following Christ can bring difficulty in our life too. It's kind of the point of the whole sermon today. So take a look at this. He's showing them, this isn't new. This is part of how God has been working all along. These aren't rebels. This is something trustworthy. This is the fulfillment of what God has been promising all along. But he's also going to show in today's text that the difficulty and conflict that Christianity has caused in the Roman Empire at the time that Theophilus is reading this stuff is to be expected. So let's take a look at this. We know that there was this guy who, this man named Simeon. We're going to start for our purposes today in verse 25. So Mary and Joseph, they're bringing their son up to offer sacrifices as they're to do at the temple. And there's this man named Simeon. It says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. By the way, a little side note here. Note the activity of the Holy Spirit in this. There can be an erroneous Christian belief that says it was all God up to the Gospels. Then it was all Jesus through the Gospels. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, the book of Acts starts. Then it's all Holy Spirit on the end of that after there. And that's just how God operates. But here we see at this very moment... Three different times in three verses, the Holy Spirit is referenced here. In verse 25, the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon. In verse 26, he had been spoken to. He had had, the Holy Spirit had revealed a promise to him. And then in verse 27, and he came in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads him to the temple at the right day when this promise to Simeon is going to be fulfilled. That he's going to see the Lord's Christ. And so he comes to the temple and he sees them coming according to the custom of the law. And verse 28, and he took him, took Jesus up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So he He's singing, essentially, here. It's a poem. 
He's singing, and it's, it's rooted in Isaiah, it's rooted in Ezekiel. He's essentially singing these old scriptures from prophetic writings that are speaking about what Jesus would be like, what Messiah would be like. And now that he's met him, he's singing these out as a way of saying the promises that God has made have been fulfilled. God is trustworthy. Look, he did what he said he was going to do. Interesting to note, too, that he ties in the idea of this is salvation to the Gentiles as well. Because as Luke goes on to continue writing, as you know, who does Luke end up partnering with? An apostle named Paul. And Paul becomes what? The apostle to the Gentiles. Luke ends up with him in the birth of the church, spreading the gospel out into the Gentile nations as well. But here's the weird part that comes in. So there's this celebration He says, I can die in peace now. I have peace. I've been waiting for this for so long. And and now he's old. And how many days did he wonder, did I hear the Holy Spirit right? Was I really going to get to see the Messiah? Maybe I was wrong. Now I'm getting old. What's going to happen? And it finally happens. And he's just rejoicing that God has been faithful. I I, I can have peace. And then he turns to Mary and he says something that if I were to say anything even close to this in any baby dedication ever, no one would ever, ever allow me to pray for their child ever, ever again. This is what he says. He says, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And then he turns to Mary, says to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul too, also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now let's think about this for a second. This is important. This is really, really important. One of the, um, I don't know, the, the distinctives of Heritage Christian Fellowship If you read our mission statement and the core values of Heritage Christian Fellowship, one of the things that you'll see in there under worship, we talk about the fact in that document that Heritage Christian Fellowship believes in the authentic worship of God. Authentic means genuine. It means real. So in other words, not just here on a Sunday morning singing songs of worship to God, but the idea that we want to genuinely worship God in spirit and in truth even as we leave this place. But there's another element to that that we talk about in that as well. Genuine, authentic worship of God doesn't just mean we worship with all of our hearts. We're being true as we worship. It also means we're worshiping the genuine, authentic God. And what I mean by that is this. We want to be really careful when we're reading the scriptures, when we're teaching the scriptures here at Heritage, to not create a God that is different than the God of the Bible. So, there's passages in Scripture that are hard. There's passages in Scripture that are controversial. And there are many throughout the history of Christianity that have run into passages like that and have sought to explain things away, come up with reasons why, well, that's not really what God meant, and and find ways of not having that be a reflection of who God is. But the problem is, is that becomes idolatry. 
Because now you are the one lording over Scripture. You are the one now deciding who God is instead of God's actual revelation to us deciding who we are. So even though there are passages that are difficult, even though there are texts that especially in our day and age can cause us, the church, conflict with people outside the church, we don't shy away from those even though we don't like them at times because we do not want to craft a God that is not the authentic, genuine God of the Bible. To do that is worshiping a false God. It's a God that we create. It's no different than creating a golden calf and worshiping that. We want to worship the genuine, true God of the Bible. This is important. And so in this particular text, this becomes important to understand because sometimes we can have a picture in our mind about who God is, why Jesus came, what it was like when he was there. And sometimes those thoughts and ideas in our mind are crafted more by our culture or seasons or life experiences than they are the actual scripture here. So consider this. Last week we talked about the the reality of peace through relationship with Jesus. We talked about having peace with God, peace with self, peace with others. Now here in this story, we have these two people who are awaiting this, this salvation of Israel. So here's Simeon. He's been awaiting this. And here's Anna. She's been waiting this too. And so they're waiting for this same thing. When the Jewish people are awaiting the Messiah, they're not just waiting for um, a liberator that's going to defeat Rome. They're praying and waiting for what they refer to as shalom, peace. And it's very much the same as what we talked about last week. Peace with each other, peace with God, peace with themselves, peace around them. So it's a, a holistic peace over the entire land. This is what they're actually waiting for. And so here they are. And Simeon says, I can die in what? Peace. And then he turns to Mary and he says, he, he's, he's not, it's, peace isn't number one on the agenda. He's going to cause conflict, and it's going to hurt you too. He's going to divide. That doesn't sound like peace. Baby Jesus, silent night, holy night, away in a manger, sleep in heavenly peace. I mean, this is a Christmas story in much ways. This is the the child Jesus after his birth, and what what are you talking about here? Let me show you the paradox, how we can take the Christmas season And the stories of Christmas and frame them in such a way that is divorced from the actual context of Scripture. Because it it meets our greeting card idea of what's going on, but doesn't meet the actual truth of what's going on in Scripture. So, I told you this is kind of like our Christmas right now. We're doing these stories now, which is probably the time more like when Jesus actually was born. But that's another story for another time. There's a song that gets played at Christmas every year, sung by thousands. People pay tons of money to go see it, usually done by high school bands badly, but sometimes big symphonies do it right. It is a song that is earmarked specifically for Christmas. Could you guys play a clip of that, please, for me? You may know what this song is. Somebody give me the name. Somebody in here knows. What's this from? Handel's Young Messiah. Think it, listen to the words. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord of God, omnipotent greatness. He shall reign forever. You know all that stuff, right? You know this song, right? Beautiful song, right? 
incredible, powerful, moving Christmas song that's done in Christmas performances all the time. It's a scriptural song. What they're singing is based specifically and literally on an actual biblical text that they're singing. And it's powerful. But you know what the text is? The text is actually found not in Luke chapter 2. The text is found in Revelation chapter 19. And it's about Christ's arrival, but the second one, not the first one. And take a look at what is said beginning in verse 6 of Revelation. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimonies of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Merry Christmas, right? His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the text that Handel's Young Messiah is based on that gets sung at Christmas plays and Christmas pageants all the time. And people, Christian and non, will gather together and there's this powerful movement that's happening in the song that you can't but get caught up in if it's done well. And people love it and they're singing along with it, but they don't realize that divorced from its context, oh, it's a beautiful, powerful song. But in its context... It's powerful in a very different way. It's not sentimental, silent night, baby Jesus. It's King, Lord, who comes to make war with the enemies of God. This is the paradox that we don't always understand. The birth of Christ, though we sentimentalize it, is that a word, sentimentalize it? It is now. Sentimentalize it with songs like Silent Night and Away in a Manger, and we'll do it this year. We'll have candles at our Christmas service and the whole deal because it's great and it's awesome to be able to honor God and all those kind of things. But, but what we can forget is the reality of what's actually happening. The birth of Christ was not Silent Night, Holy Night. It was an invasion. It was Jesus Christ coming to make war and not figuratively, literally, 
to make war. And you go, but he's prince of peace, doesn't he? Isn't he the prince of, yes, yes he is, but how does he bring peace? He brings peace much in the same way that the soldiers brought peace to Normandy when they invaded on D-Day. By vanquishing enemies, defeating evil, and bringing peace and shalom back to a land that has lost it. That's what the birth of Christ means. And so here's Simeon who can say, I can die in peace, but he understands what this child has come for. And you go, no, come on, dude, you're, 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 you're taking it way too far. You're trying to tell me that Jesus came to cause con- conflict. Yes, but more importantly, Jesus tells us that that's what he did. He says in Luke, again, twelve fifty one. he says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. So let's look at what Simeon says. Simeon says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. So what is it that Simeon is saying here? He's saying, Jesus has come to polarize people. And there's going to be two categories of people. Those that are rising, those that are falling, and there's no in between. There's rising and falling. There are either those rising into, who will go to heaven, followers of Christ, saved, redeemed, victorious, and those that fall. And there's no in between. Even though people fight to try to find in between, Jesus doesn't allow that. So here's what I want you to understand. When when Simeon says that this child is appointed for, there, there's actually a tense in that verb that, that means literally he's going to cause it. So this isn't something that's just going to happen. Oh, Jesus is going to have a rough life and some people are going to fall and some people are going to rise. No, he's saying this child is appointed. It is his purpose to cause this division, if you will, between people. Some that will rise and some that will fall. And you go, how did Jesus cause it? Just think. Like, Think for a moment at the almost lunacy, if we didn't know who he was, of the claims of Jesus Christ that he makes in Scripture. They're outlandish. They're ludicrous for anyone else to make. So, for example, he says that he is the Lord of Lords. You know what that means? He's telling everyone, you're mine. You're mine. You belong to me. So imagine you're walking down Biddle with a little Dairy Queen ice cream in your hand, and some carpenter walks up to you and says, you belong to me. If he's talking to your daughter, you're probably calling 911 and killing the guy, right? Like, that, there's not a middle ground on a statement like that. You're either like, you're right, what would you have me do? Or you're combating that going, I don't even know who you are, you are not, I do not belong to you, but that's what that means. Think, think about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus literally says, whether you rise, whether you stand, or whether you fall will depend solely and specifically on how you know me, whether you love me, and whether you obey me. Every person in history, this is Jesus' claim, every person in the history of the world, whether they can stand or fall, will depend solely and specifically on me and their reaction to me. Can you imagine anyone making such a claim in any other way. These are Jesus's words meant to force the issue on people. Think about the rich young ruler, the story of the rich young ruler. 
We turn it into a discipleship thing and about the dangers of wealth and all this kind of stuff. But just for a second, just think about the practical thing that he says to the rich young ruler. You guys know the story. This guy comes to Jesus and he wants to, he's like, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus tells him, if you're going to follow me, you want to get into heaven, you want to be one of my, my disciples, then you need to go get rid of everything that you have and follow me. And this guy was super rich. And it says he walked away sad because he had great possessions. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. He wouldn't follow so think of what Jesus is saying when he makes that statement to him. He's saying to him, I have to be more important than anything in your life. Than, not just more important than anything, also more important than everything. Not just the individual things, the summation of everything you have, every ounce of wealth you have. If you want to follow me, I have to be supreme over all of that. Where's the middle ground in a statement like that? There's, there's no such thing. He, he says at one point, I have to be so important to you that if your hand is preventing you from being able to follow me, cut off your hand and come on. That would seem ludicrous. If your eye is preventing you from following me, I have to be so important to you that you're willing to just rip it out and follow me. Those aren't middle ground statements. Those are very polarizing claims. Now, some people want to avoid the idea of, am I rising or falling? Do I, am I going to really buy into this or not? And so people will, will try to soften that and they'll end up going, well, the Bible doesn't really do this. Or they'll say different things and they'll, they'll say, well, Jesus, you know, he, he had some really good teachings and really good ideas for human potential and humanity and all those things. So, so I'm not going to go the whole Lord thing. I don't, he's not Lord, but he was a great teacher and he loved people and we can, we can gain from that. That's idolatry. Because now you're taking Jesus and going, no, he's not who he claimed to be. He's a really good teacher. He was apparently confused in some areas, and we'll throw that out. And besides, who knows? The Bible's been passed down so many times. You see what you're doing when you do that. When, when someone tries to craft a middle road that says, no, I, I'm not rising or falling. I'm in the middle, and I can just appreciate him, but I don't have to. No, no, no. That's idolatry. You are now crafting a God that is different than the God that has revealed himself in scripture to us. You see, Jesus really forces the issue here. And there's no middle ground. So you either hate him or reject him. You either love him or despise him. And, and anything that you're doing in the middle that doesn't put God in the place of absolute supremacy in your life is a form of idolatry because you're ranking him somewhere different than he himself makes claims to be. Jesus demands allegiance. And his teachings don't give us middle ground on those things. Jesus came to divide. He polarizes and divides people. And my goodness, we, we, we know even in our own, not just in human history since then, but even in our own lives, we can think of, of places and times where we've had relationships that have suffered because of our decision to follow Christ, many of you, or family members, or relationships that you've lost. But that's not even the hard part of this text yet. The, the hard part about this text is he doesn't just divide people 
between those who are rising and those who are falling, or those who are ascending to heaven with Christ, you would say, and those who are falling. He, he doesn't just do those things, but he divides our heart as well. Simeon said in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see why we didn't want to do this on Child Dedication Day? Ugh, it's heavy, right? Now, He's talking to Mary here. As best we know, Joseph um, likely died somewhere young in Jesus' life. We don't really, I think we only get one more reference to him in the book of Luke from here on out, and it's like in the next story, and that's it. Um, So he's turning to Mary, but Mary and Joseph are both there. And, And he makes this comment, and he says, A sword will pierce through your own soul also. There's no doubt that Mary um is going to experience this. Is there not? Because Mary's going to see her son at the cross. She's going to see her son carrying our sin and our shame. She's going to see her son die in such a way that no one ever has before and no one ever will again. She, her heart will be broken as she sees this happen. As she sees a sword, a spear, piece, G, pierce Jesus's heart, hers will be ripped in two. There's no doubt about that. But, but there's more to that here. In, in some ways, Mary is the representative, you might say, of all who choose to follow Jesus, because he even goes on to say, so that thoughts from the heart may be as well. And this is, this is what we know from this. The decision to follow Christ doesn't just polarize us from those who do not, but the decision to follow Christ also enters us into a life of conflict as well. Salvation opens the door into a life of eternal conf- or excuse me internal conflict for the believers in Christ. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, last week, we were talking about relationship with Jesus, and we were talking about how um, because he is the Prince of Peace and we have relationship with him, we can have peace with ourselves, we can have peace with others, we can have peace with God. So how is that achieved? How does that happen? Well, it, it happens through the gospel. The gospel is, is the understanding that God is our creator, that God created us He has creator's rights. God is holy and pure, but we have every single one of us rebelled against God and walked away from him. We have chosen the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God, and we have fallen. And and so we are now, because of our sin, we're separated from God who is holy and perfect and pure. And we are unable to do anything anything to bridge that gap and earn our way back. The Bible even says our own righteousness is filthy rags. It is impossible for us to do anything to make up the gap that now exists because of our sin. We need a savior. And so Jesus has come. God in the flesh came, lived for 30 plus years on this earth without sinning, doing everything that we couldn't do, he did. All the commandments of scripture that we fail in, he achieved them all. He fulfilled all of them on our behalf and then went to the cross where our sin, our shame was placed on his shoulders. He was treated and killed bearing the punishment for sin that we deserved. Our punishment, our cross. 
But he rose again on the third day, defeating death, not just carrying the punishment for our sin and experiencing death for us, but then defeating death and has ascended into heaven and says to any who would repent of their sin and believe in him that they can be saved, that we're adopted into the kingdom of God. We are now joint heirs with Christ. He's not just our savior. He's in this insane, unbelievable way. He's our brother. And then there's this inheritance that he has for the people of God, this kingdom now and to come. It's an incredible thing. It's the gospel and it's entered into by faith and people go that's so you just believe yeah we just repent of our sin and believe well it seems too easy you ever heard people say that the gospel seems too easy no one that has ever repented would ever say that right repentance is hard and heartbreaking the bible tells us this Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Repentance is painful. It's a honest, gut-wrenching realization of our brokenness and our failure. It is an unflinching look at the reality of the dark parts of our heart. It's understanding that the sin that we commit is the reason that the perfect Savior Christ died in the first place. It's painful. And it doesn't just happen once. Some people think, oh, so you just repent at the beginning and then you become a Christian and then you're fine, you're okay. No, Martin Luther, I think it was, said life is repentance. All of life is repentance. Because the more one walks with Jesus, the more one realizes how much we need him. And the more promises that we make year after year after year, Lord, I will never do that again. Lord, I will never do that again. Lord, I will never do that again. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, the, the Annas and the Simeons in the room, you know what I mean. Imagine him. Imagine Simeon having to go to sacrifice after sacrifice, constantly trying to keep the law constantly trying to do what the law told him he had to do so that he could find approval with God. No wonder he rejoices and holds this baby up and says, now I can die in peace. I have a savior. He came. But repentance is heartbreaking. You know what else is painful? Obedience. <laughs> Speaking about dividing, obedience is painful. Obedience is difficult. I mean, we can lose relationships because we choose to obey God. We can lose friends. We can lose money. We're, we're turning away from self. That includes sacrifice and discipline. And then there's failure and then repentance again. And over and over and over there's this breaking that occurs in the heart of the believer as they realize their fallenness and then they look to their beautiful and perfect Savior. But here's the difference for us. The people who are falling, when Simeon says they're going to rise or they're going to fall, the people who fall, the people who hear Jesus say things like whether you go to heaven or are cast into hell will depend on how you deal with me. 
and who see those things and they reject such claims, they have failed to see the most, just the unbelievable attractiveness of the life of Jesus Christ. That's the privilege that we even have as we're going through the book of Luke and as we have this, that we see that he's not just some king who came, showed up, and demanded allegiance like so many have for so long. But no one has loved like Jesus has. No one has cared for the broken like Jesus has. No one has cared for the needy like Jesus has. No one has put personal reputation and pride and prestige and all that stuff aside and even let it get slandered for the sake of doing the right thing for the people who are in need. So when we hit that brokenness and we see again and again and again that following Jesus causes an internal conflict in our soul that's always happening, we're brought back around by the glorious beauty of the life of a Savior who came to divide but loves And one last thing I want to tell you. You go, then where does the peace come from? None of this sounds like peace at all. And last week it was all about peace, and isn't he the prince of peace? I don't understand all this. Think about Simeon in this case. What is it that he's getting his peace from in that moment? Everything he's singing is about the fulfillment of promises. That God made a promise to him and kept him. And not just that you would see the Christ, but the promises of redemption and salvation for Israel and for everyone. The promises of what the future of Israel is going to be like. He finds peace, not in the circumstance he's in in that moment, but in the fact that God keeps his word and is faithful. Well, the good news is, the Bible doesn't end with Revelation chapter 19. There's a couple of good chapters after that as well. And Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Let's pray. Will you take a moment right now to search your own heart? All of life is repentance. Our Lord is good and he is kind, but he does demand allegiance. He does. And I can't imagine there's a soul in this room that can say with pure heart that there aren't places where we've sacrificed this, where we've placed other things ahead of him, our own comfort, our own joy, our own will, our own desires, our own fears, our own anxieties. Will you take them before the Lord? We don't have to go 
to temples and offer sacrifices anymore. We can come boldly into the throne room of grace. And we have a faithful God who, as we bring these things to him, understands our weakness, understands our frailty. That's why he came. And forgiveness and mercy is there. Go to him, will you? Father, I pray for all of us here this morning that our words could, could echo the words of Simeon, that, that we can depart this place in peace according to your word. That, Lord, you would be in your rightful place enthroned on our hearts. Lord, I thank you that you forced these decisions for us. I thank you that you have forced this issue because, Lord, we would, we would so much quickly choose comfort or self-rule. But we need you, our King. We need you, our Savior. We are lost without you. But God, thank you so much for your promises. Your promises of forgiveness for the repentant. Your promises of mercy for your people. Your promises of of joy in the midst of circumstances, your promises of a future without pain, without death, without mourning. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you would leave your throne in heaven, descend here, go through what you did, die on our behalf, defeat sin and rise again. Thank you, God, that you have sent your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that you have sent your word through people such as Luke and Paul and others. Thank you, Lord, that we have your word, that we can know you and be known by you. And now, Lord, we need your grace and your mercy and your spirit as we follow you. Lord, just as your spirit was with Simeon, Lord, may you be with us. Father, help us to have victory over sin, to ignore temptation. Grant us, Lord, we pray, power for obedience. And Lord, continue to grace us with repentance for sin. Father, give us a peace that is centered on you and your promises. And save us, Lord, for pursuing peace in other ways. Lord, you are the omnipotent God who reigns. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah to your name, we pray. And in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Will you join me on your feet, please, this morning? He is the Prince of Peace, but he brings peace in a specific way. But that is not bad news. That is good news. If he didn't make war with our sin, who would? And praise God that he is faithful to grant forgiveness because we need it. Amen if you need it. That was a 8.30 amen. Let's try that one more time. Amen if you need it. All right.
I love you guys. Go in God's grace. Share the good news of his repentance and his forgiveness with others. God bless you. We'll see you later.